Exit for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. Welcome back to all new, all different, uncanny X's for podcasts, where we examine the uncanny X-Men comic book franchise as it begins its multi-title 80s expansion. I'm your host, Jonah. And I'm Nico. And I'm pretty sure we're supposed to be uncanny X-Men, but as per usual, it seems like we're spending an awful lot of time with some side characters, because I could have sworn this one was called Uncanny X's for Spider-Woman. Yeah, pretty much. This is basically the Spider-Woman episode. Absolutely, and we've had so many Spider-Man episodes that it was just about time that Spider-Woman make an appearance. As a matter of fact, I would refer to this episode as the tipping point, where the Uncanny X-Men become a decidedly more female-centric story. Yes, if that's one main takeaway of the reading list for today, is that the females of the X-Verse are pretty impressive and pretty much control the story right now. The other main takeaway is the Avengers suck, but we're going to get to that. Oh boy, they're terrible. And I think one of the things that's really interesting is we're starting to see the X-verse shift dramatically, not just in terms of who's speaking, but in terms of what we're covering. We had spent so long with the X-Men adventuring and going off on these worldwide missions and all of these concerns of life and death, and don't get me wrong, 148 and 149, the two uncanny issues we cover in particular, do have some dire consequences, but these issues seem to be more concerned with the emotional well-being of the characters and the development of the X-Men as a family unit following the departure of Jean and Scott than it seems to be about punching bad guys, no matter how much focus the bad guys get. And oh man, Magneto gets some crazy focus here. It's actually pretty interesting because Magneto pulls focus, but he's actually not really the center of anything. He's kind of pulling the strings behind the scene, and he's kind of setting in motion everything that's already been happening, even though he's not really on the pages themselves. I agree. In that way, it's kind of like the Hellfire Club from several arcs ago, but in a much more removed way. We spent so much time being concerned about the actions of the Hellfire Club, but so far, other than a little bit of Xavier here and there, the Magneto stuff seems to be relegated to a B-plot involving Cyclops. Is it just me, or does the Cyclops stuff feel like a separate book? Absolutely. Cyclops is playing his um, castaway fantasy right now with Lee and stumbling upon Magneto. It's really weird that this is getting a back burner because this is the X-Men's main nemesis. This is their, if you think of the X-Men and you say a villain, you think of Magneto, but he's not really getting a lot of spotlight. Neither is Scott or Lee for this matter, and it's really weird because it feels like they're setting up for something big but we're not focused there yet which is just as i said a weird storytelling device and i think that's a really good point one of the things about this episode that didn't escape my notice is that so much of these stories are either setting up what's coming next or reacting to something that already happened it's a really exciting time to be an x-men fan and we have some phenomenal material to cover today 
Today we're going to cover Spider-Woman 37 and 38 by Chris Claremont and Steve Lealoa from April and June 1981, where Spider-Woman finds herself up against Black Tom, Juggernaut, and the new villain, Siren, when the X-Men step in to help her out. In Uncanny X-Men number 148 and 149 by regular art team Claremont and Cockrum, Kitty takes front and center as the X-Men prepare to battle Magneto. These two issues feature a significant number of appearances including Dazzler, Spider-Woman, Siren, Banshee, Stevie Hunter, Caliban, and Moira McTaggart. We'll be finishing things up with Avengers Annual number 10 from August 1981 by Chris Claremont and Michael Golden, in which Rogue makes her debut, Carol Danvers takes a hit, and the Avengers get called out. This is a really varied reading list that has an insane amount of Spider-Woman, all things considered, but I also noticed that this is a number of stories where the villains are very quickly redeemed. We have Siren, who seeks redemption, immediately following Spider-Woman 37 and 38. We have Caliban, who is really by no means a villain, and will make a number of appearances, and unfortunately way too many of them are creepy. We have Garak, but I mean, he's not really looking for any kind of redemption. I mean, he's just, Garak is back. But then we have Rogue. Rogue, who will ultimately be looking for redemption very shortly. It's interesting that Claremont took the time to create several female villains and either immediately or redeem them shortly thereafter, as well as Caliban. Things are going to start heating up for the Morlocks at some point, and Claremont's really not sure what he's doing yet, but we're getting there. I would even also argue there's a little bit of redemption for Black Tom because he immediately saves Siren when they're caught and defeated. Instead of throwing her under the bus, he makes sure that his niece is safe and made sure that she's taken care of and placed on the right path to meet her father. Which is really bizarre, because it's either Black Tom really cares for his niece that much that he ultimately wants her to go to Banshee, of all people who he seems to hate. Really weird contradiction of character that I don't know if makes sense, but it's the story we got. Honestly, it is that he loves her so much, and he knows that Banshee will keep her on the straight and narrow. He would love a life of crime for her, because that's his life, but at the same time... He wants better for her. Black Tom's love for Siren is a very complicated and interesting story that's going to play out over the course of multiple titles. We're going to see this pop up in New Mutants, Fallen Angels, X-Force, X-Factor, just to name a few. This is going to be a big story that plays out over a long period of time. As a matter of fact, while Black Tom is never really a top-tier X-Men villain the way Juggernaut is, Black Tom does stay very central to the X-Men thanks to his connection to the Cassidy family and Juggernaut. It's also really interesting that Cockrum has been back for just a handful of issues, and I feel like we spent so much time with Cockrum characters this arc. We had Black Tom and Juggernaut, who the last time we saw them in a big way was the Cassidy Keep arc. We had the return of Magneto, who Cockrum drew exceptionally. One thing I do want to say about Siren is that she's the first ex-kid that we're getting, where it's a child of one of the already established X-Men. And something I'm going to say about her is that I think she's a Clermazon in disguise. She seems pretty powerful, and she even has more evolved techniques of using her sonar power that Banshee has never done, we've never seen before. So it's pretty interesting how powerful she really is, and it's something that Spider-Woman remarks is that the only thing holding her back is her experience. And let's talk about those Spider-Woman issues, since we're right here. This is another one of those. I'm Chris Claremont, and this is me taking on this title. He really wants everybody who's reading this for the first time because they love the X-Men to know what's going on. Now, the cover makes it clear that there's something X-Men-ish going on. You've got Juggernaut, you've got Siren, who just straight up does look like Banshee. But more than that, when you buy this issue, 
because you're promised there's some amount of X-Men in there. They really should be clearer. The X-Men show up for like three pages talking about fixing the fucking danger room again. I don't know what's going on, but this is something that they have continuously referenced, and it's something that's still not fixed. It's been how many years outside of comics that the X-Room has been destroyed in 143, but in comic time, they're still fixing it, and we've seen the X-Room destroyed before, and they've always blown past it, and it was always fixed so fast, but this time, it's still not done. It's almost like they can't let Kitty escape from it. And I think part of it has to do with the realities they're trying to sell. This episode also marks the departure of Warren Worthington. He never really fit back into the X-Men after Dark Phoenix Saga, and his inclusion always felt a little hollow. His only contributions really were to fly in and offer Storm some advice here and there. Other than that, he's been a checkbook. He quits the team because... He can't deal with Wolverine being there. His reasoning is ridiculous, and it's, uh, he killed you, Professor, and he sure used his enhanced senses to know it was a Doom bot, but what if it had been a woman disguised as you? His senses would have told him it was a person. I just, Warren Worthington III is easily my least favorite member of the X-Men. Here we see a little bit of Warren's ego get in the way, and it's something that's a Bad character quality that kind of makes it better that he's not on the team right now. I don't think Warren has the emotional maturity to realize that he's not the star and he never was the star and he's never going to be the star. He's, as we've said in uh, past episodes, Warren's outclassed when it comes to his ability. His mutation just isn't enough compared to the awesomeness of the rest of the X-Men. He doesn't offer much outside of high speeds and maybe delivering a powerful punch every now and then, but you have two people who are already better than him than that. What else? It was something we remarked over and over again about his contributions to the champions. It was so uneven and so difficult to give him enough to do to keep him busy. But back to Spider-Woman. Angel is still with the team, is specifically making an appearance on the cover of issue 38. The Spider-Woman story itself is really unbalanced. We get a whole bunch of her, this is what you need to know to follow along. And that's what I was saying. Chris Claremont was trying to make it easy to join in. But the amount of her backstory that we get compressed down to a handful of pages feels a little on the nose, and it's only made more on the nose by the punctuation of the appearance of her villain. Morgan Le Fay just randomly tries to blow Spider-Woman out of the sky. Yes, I think this issue suffered a little too much of they're setting up the dominoes to then knock them down. We spend a little bit too much of this issue setting things up. There isn't much of an overall plot until the very last few pages, but Getting that shoved, spoon-fed backstory that we need to understand who Jessica Drew is, I think helps, but this issue didn't really make me like her because she came off just very generic superhero. There wasn't anything really special about her, her characterization, and what she said. She didn't seem different to me than most of the other women being written. There wasn't anything that drew me to her. I will say, though, when we do get to eventually talking about it, I really did like her in the Avengers annual issue, but in her own story in these two issues, she came across a little flat. And I think that's in part because Chris Claremont does his best work with a team. When he has other people to juxtapose his characters against, he's able to create a lot more context and a lot more character texture, but only having Jessica Drew and one character to play off of at a time was a little frustrating. I also want to make a note, Claremont went out of his way to 
earn some points with me when Jessica Drew says to Nick Fury, oh, you want me to stop being a bounty hunter because I'm a woman? And he says, no, it's because you're not a cruel killer. And to be a bounty hunter, you need to be that. But nearly the next panel, when the Contessa enters, and Nick Fury's like, dames, am I right? I'm just like, oh my god, obviously this is by a man again. I just... Very much one step forward, three step backwards. I'd say, if you're going to make that kind of statement and line in a story, make it a character who didn't just stand up for a woman. That's fine to do, but don't make a character wishy-washy like that two panels later. Unfortunately, that's indicative of the wishy-washiness of the men at the time trying to support women. The rest of this issue is really generic, like a lot of these two-parters. The first one sets up all the dominoes, and the second one is 18 pages of fight sequence. And that really has been a pattern for Claremont. Going back an incredibly long stretch, we felt that way of Marvel Team-Up 6566 featuring Captain Britain. We felt that way... Of the ROM issues, which, while not by Claremont, did receive some consultation by him, and we feel that way again here. There is something very much to this idea of the two-parter, where the first one introduces everybody and gets all the pieces in play, and that second one is 18 pages of action. And these 18 pages of action aren't even the most exciting we've ever read before, so it kind of almost just comes across boring, you know? It's a little bit of a deus ex machina for Jessica Drew, because the X-Men come and they just save the day, and... Really, without them there, she would have been framed a la regular Spider-Man, which is a weird comparison that I don't think was necessary. Yeah, there's just a lot about this that's buying time. Chris Claremont never really found Jessica Drew's voice. In fact, he only had a few more months left on the title. I believe he wrote six more issues and left a year later because this book was bi-monthly. I do think the fact that this is a bi-monthly title does kind of come across that she's not as popular The audience isn't expected to know as much about her coming into it, and that very much presents itself. I also want to comment on how generic all of the fight sequences are getting at this point. There's only two ways these battles go. The X-Men are being defeated the entire time, there's a morale change, and they rally and work together as a team, or Kitty phases through the bad guy. That is the only way stories are ending right now. Yeah, and it's just something I've just been noticing about comics is that the main team, while we always want to root for them and you don't want everything to be easy for them, a lot of the time they get their asses handed to them and it's not the most enjoyable to watch because I want to say, well, the X-Men are smarter than this. The X-Men are better than this. Why are they losing to villains that they've beat at weaker versions of themselves? They've been training. They learn things, but they seem to go down in one or two hits and that's just... So bizarre that there are people taken out of the fight so immediately for things. It's just, it's following a plot that is starting to become predictable. And then when you have predictability, you're going to get people bored. And the name of the game here is bring people back month after month. The more these stories become formulaic interpretations of themselves, the more I find myself not as interested in seeing where the X-Men appeared outside of their own title. But to that point, 148 and 149 both served to further the plot. I don't know that I felt there was too much going on in either one of them. I appreciated all of the feminine power of 148, but the actual Caliban story was rather weak for me. I appreciated the excitement and the adventure of seeing Kitty Pride on the Blackbird or X-Jet at this point. I think it's great that we saw her contribute to the team, but... Again, Garak didn't really feel like a villain that held the issue together. Absolutely not. 148 
was a little too much setup for me in that you're right, nothing actually happened. Caliban doesn't really do anything evil. He's just lonely and upset. And then when he realizes there are other mutants, he just wants friends. Does he go about the right way? No. But even Storm remarks that they, they didn't handle it the right way either. So it's a really weird issue that nothing of value actually happens. No one really learns a lesson. No one joins the team. They don't get a new ally. Nothing substantial happens this just seems like an issue to showcase the different women like look at all these different women we have they're all friends and i think you're onto something there is no major status quo change here as a matter of fact 148 feels like the culmination of several things that we knew would be the case once siren was introduced it wasn't hard to assume that banshee would eventually get to meet her i actually did love that moment between storm and moira though when moira's like i I'm just so upset ye that he may yet be not mine because he be so distracted by him, their daughter, their her. And Storm is like, I have the same problem with Stevie and Kitty. I also know what it's like to have somebody I love possibly taken from me with irrational fear. And I actually love that moment. The other really emotional moment that I want to touch on is in 149, and it might be my favorite moment that we have covered so far on Exodus for Podcast. Kitty being so sad that Professor Xavier is an asshole, and the whole team coming together to make her smile, and Storm zapping Nightcrawler, and Nightcrawler tossing her like she's in the circus, and Colossus catching her, and Wolverine making a little joke about him being her boyfriend. Oh, that's my X-Men. That's my X-Men. And this is just, like, the greatest fucking moment, and... It's why Kitty Pride is the X-Men everybody wanted to be growing up, because this is it. This is the family. This is what we've been working toward. And not to get too ahead of myself, but the next few years of issues really cement this emotional relationship. And I couldn't be happier to see it start here in this episode that I felt like there was enough lull that these two moments are spotlighted really well. Jonah, it's been a really long time since we've seen the X-Men have an emotional growth point. Everything has been generating out of Jean's death in 137, but we're on 149, and it finally feels like the X-Men are beginning to rally around a new idea. Instead of protecting Kitty so she doesn't die like Jean, they're beginning to look to Kitty as her own person and interact with her. What are your thoughts watching Kitty Pride come into her adulthood, or at least her X-Manship? One thing I want to mention before I hearken into my love and interest of Kitty Pride right now is that the Moira moment reminded me of that classic that we read with her trying to revive her son Proteus. And it's that same thing that Banshee went through where he wasn't going to make Moira choose his love over her child, but he wanted to support her and stand by her. And it's something that I think Moira understood at that time, but now she's in the in Banshee's shoes in this situation. And I think she's starting to realize what that would have been like for him. But I know that she knows deep down that Banshee isn't going to choose someone over her. There's more than enough love for both of them. So I think that was a really great moment and I'm glad you picked up on it. Now, Kitty, Kitty gets a lot of love this episode. Kitty saves the day. Kitty grows up. And I think it's really interesting to see the way Charles treats his students and how his students treat each other. Well, I understand Charles is upset in the moment and you told your kid, don't do this. What You're not supposed to be doing this right now. Don't bother me. He comes off in such a cold way. And it's something that I said last episode is that Kitty is 13 and a half. And these experiences are going to mold who she is as a person as she grows up. And this is going to cause psychological issues 
of trust and all these different things because of how cold he is and the way he snaps at her. But the love she feels from the X-Men who say, hey, our kitten's down, let's make her happy. It's just a really nice moment where the X-Men say, we can take a moment, she needs to be happy and we love her smile. And they all play their part and I think everyone does it so well that they make sure Kitty knows that she is love and she's not alone. Because certainly the other side of that coin is some people do feel alone. There's not too much going on with 148 and 149 that isn't just setting us up for some cataclysmic battle with Magneto in 150. Magneto confronts Cyclops, who has washed up on his island, while the X-Men are in deep search for Magneto, which takes us to Avengers Annual 10. Avengers Annual 10 is a devastating story. A little necessary background, Avengers 197-200 to saw Carol Danvers suddenly become pregnant, give birth, turns out it was an otherworldly entity that put himself in her so she could have him, and then whisked her away to an alternate reality where he could give her all of her dreams, and the Avengers all just kind of waved goodbye to her and said, good job. Turns out it was not such a good job. She shows back up in San Francisco where she does battle with Rogue. Rogue steals her powers, and at the beginning of the issue, she's an amnesiac. And as her mind returns to her, we come to discover that she is incredibly resentful of the Avengers. She was, for all intents and purposes, raped, kidnapped, mind-controlled, and tortured. And the Avengers made jokes and patted her on the back. This story is devastating on a number of levels. I personally think this is one of the most important turning points for the X-Men. It's even down to Michael Golden's much more serious art. Jonah, this is one of the darker stories we've covered since Days of Future Past. And once again, of course, it focuses on Mystique. This was your first rogue who was such an X-Men mainstay. Tell me about your relationship with this story. So now I don't know a lot about Rogue, as we've talked about. We've seen her a little bit in that one classic issue slash Marvel Car- I don't want I want to call it Carnival, but that's not right. We've seen her in that one X-Men classic and that one Marvel fanfare, but we don't have a lot of Rogue just yet, so I'm going off a lot of what her first appearances mean. This is a pretty interesting first appearance. One noticeably is her design. I know more Rogue as that beautiful long hair and that more iconic costume, although I know it's her ex-costume. It's still something I was jarred to not see her in. But Rogue comes off very malicious and a little toned down from that classic slash fanfare that we read, but she's still overexcited to use her powers and absorb them on people and get their memories and everything. And she takes down three incredible powerhouses that a lot of the Avengers remark, like, we're lucky to even survive a hit with the combined powers of Thor, Ms. Marvel, and Captain America. But Rogue came off maybe just a little too villainous for me that I don't see how a full redemption can happen because she remarks she completely stole part of Miss Marvel's power. It was a complete transfer. And that actually wasn't her intent, which is a weird thing to think about if you're a villain trying to take down heroes, you don't want to put them out of commission completely. It's more complicated than that, and it's definitely a long gambit that Claremont is prepared to play. Rogue's transformation from villain to hero and even her initial villainy is all very well contextualized. One of the reasons that we had become nervous as we discussed the X-Men classics, two excellent examples that Jonah has illustrated here, 
both kind of talk about why those stories were written years after these stories, the proper narrative was. So they're written with the magic of hindsight blinders. Moira had already had her touching moment with Storm when Fabian Nicieza wrote the touching moment between Banshee and Moira. Not that that did anything to take that incredible power from the Aurora Moira moment, but it certainly changed how we looked at it. Once again, we've already met Rogue in X-Men Classic at this point. It changes the context of her first appearance. She is truly heinous early on. And that is one of the things that comes along with being a villain before you're a hero. Her journey to heroism does find its roots in the fact that Ms. Marvel's psyche is living in her mind. One of the big takeaways from this issue is that Chris Claremont loves to use annuals to do big, expensive fight sequences. Oh my god, the fight sequences in this issue go on forever. They really do, and it's fine to have them drawn out, but something that I just noticed is that, wow, the Avengers kind of suck. They're all taken out in at least one hit, and it's not to say... Not to take away from the power of this new Brotherhood of Evil run by Mystique, but these are very seasoned heroes, and these are villains that are still trying to get used to working together. So to see the Brotherhood so cohesive and almost able to take down the Avengers so easily is pretty interesting. I will admit part of that was due to the powers of Destiny, but even then her powers aren't fully set in stone. But gosh, I love this Destiny fight. She's great. This is one of the best Claremont ever writes her. This is great use of a precog. I love the idea that Destiny is in a battle against the Scarlet Witch because they are two really weird, hard to explain powers fighting against each other. And to your point, I think Pyro has really interesting powers in a visual way. And they describe his living flame like it is an organism. But at the same time, the real strong men here are Blob, who is truly unmovable, and Avalanche, who has such a tremendously ranged power. So, I love this fight sequence, and I do agree with this Brotherhood is incredibly overpowered, and that is going to come up a number of times. I think the most shocking thing about this issue for me is that Carol decides to trust the X-Men right away, and I wonder if that's a testament to the family aspect that we keep pointing out that they're trying to stress. It's very clear the X-Men has become a family, and it's somewhere that Carol quickly feels safe. Those few panels at the end with Aurora really touch me. Aurora was becoming that figure in the X-Men that we all know her to be, that maternal figure that takes care of everyone. And it's a really great transformation. This episode has been very subtle for so much, but it's been subtlety that has rewarded its audience. Absolutely. And to even hearken on another woman who I think was amazing in this issue is Jessica Drew, Spider-Woman. In the fight, she held her own and was able to basically save the Avengers by making sure Iron Man was in commission again. But it's Carol who is almost upset she didn't tell Jessica to stay with her. And it's Charles remarking that it's her who basically saved her, that she went through all of that trauma, that pain, all of that sadness and negative emotions with her and got her through it as it was slowly brought to her conscience again. It was something so beautiful, and it's a beautiful friendship that I would love to see more of, and it's why at the end of my readings I was like, okay, I'm a Spider-Woman Jessica Drew fan, because she was there for another woman 
really in her time of need. And I think it's so interesting to see Carol stand up for herself. And a lot of times when there are traumatic things that happen, there are people who don't talk about it, who tend to just rug sweep it, but they don't call out the people around them who don't do what their job is to help them. And when she calls them out, I think it's a great moment to really humanize the Avengers in, unfortunately, a bad way, but to, they know now that they can fuck up and their failure is going to be with them for the rest of their years. It's really true, and it brings to mind the fact that Avengers 197 to 199 were written by David Michelin, and 200 was written by a group of four men working together. Jim Shooter, George Perez, David Michelin, and Bob Layton. Four men came together to write a story in which Carol Danvers can ultimately be read as kidnapped, raped, mind-controlled, and tortured. The other side of this is Claremont chose to tell this as much as he could through the eyes of women. We get Scarlet Witch's reaction, Jessica Drew's reaction, we get Mystique as the narrative evil point, and we get Aurora standing by Carol at the end. It's not Xavier standing by Carol, because that's not what's necessary. Xavier can have a short aside with Jessica Drew, but this travesty of storytelling was brought to you by a number of men, and I at least appreciate Claremont's attempt to recontextualize this moment as about and by women. It's also interesting that Beast is one of the characters most physically put front and center and gets his ass handed to him by Carol. There is no punch spared because this is one of Claremont's precious X-Men. It's also interesting that this is not an X-Men issue. I know it's an Avengers issue and it's an Avengers annual, but there's so much about this that's X-Men. It is crazy how Claremont is overtaking the Marvel Universe with the X-Gene. Absolutely. I think this annual, this Avenger annual is secretly an X-Men issue because it's, this is the X-Men, as you said, it's just them taking over. This is their story, basically, because Carol is the one who's safe there. Carol doesn't feel like she can go back to the Avengers, rightfully so, but it's the warmth and the love of this few weeks that she's at the X-Mansion that she realizes that she can go on and she will survive because that's who she is. But it's, this isn't about the Avengers. I I don't, if we're going to have takeaways from this issue, it's that the X-Men are going to be an established family that will welcome anyone. Hello, hello, and welcome to another segment of X-Rex. I'm Matthew, and it's never not going to be weird to introduce myself on one of these. Today I'm come bearing not one, but two gifts, though they are intertwined. Back in 1983, Chris Claremont wrote a four-issue miniseries titled Ileana and Storm, Magic. At least that's what it says on the covers. Marvel Unlimited lists it simply as Magic, with a K. So for search purposes, I suggest using that. In 2018, Leah Williams, a new personal favorite writer of mine, wrote a what-if comic spinning directly out of that story. First, some context. Ileana Rasputin is the younger sister of Pyotr Rasputin, aka Colossus. He doesn't really matter in either one of these stories. Back in Uncanny X-Men number 160, the team was trapped in limbo by a demon named Belasco. They managed to escape, but on the way out, Katie lost her grip on Ileana for a second. She managed to grab her back, but in that moment, Ileana had aged seven years. This miniseries explores what happened between those moments. While I won't spoil specific plot points, both the miniseries and the what-if conclusions are already told. Ileana obviously survives her mini, and returns to the X-Men, only seven years older and with powers. And the title of the what-if comic spoils its own conclusion, title being, What If Magic Became the Sorcerer Supreme? 
But as with most things, it's about the journey more than the destination. Magic's miniseries takes place in Limbo, starring herself as the central figure, with Belasco, ruler of Limbo, as the primary antagonist. The other notable characters are Cat, a more bestial hippie pride, and Storm, who, in this realm, is a powerful sorceress. Velasco kept Ileana in limbo so that he could use her to create five bloodstones, which would allow him to break the dimensional barriers and create literal hell on Earth. Really, he could have just waited until 2016, and the job would have been done for him, but I digress. Ileana is rescued by Storm, who begins training her in magic. Later, after a predictable tragedy, Velasco continues Ileana's training, though in perhaps darker arts. Along the way, her mutant ability to create teleportation disks manifests, and she uses it to escape Velasco's imprisonment, though not Limbo itself. In all fairness, the series is a bit of a trauma conga line for her, and doesn't she doesn't really catch a break until the very end. Uh, apparently I have a bit of a thing for stories where the protagonist suffers immensely. Not super sure what that says about me. I promise I'm not a total sadist. Promise. Totally. I'll have something later next time. But in truth, I love watching characters struggle. Watching Eliana try again and again to use creation magic to make something as small as an acorn, and failing every time, breaks my heart, but is deeply compelling. And then to see her choose her own path, to find a third option that leads to her escape, is that much more cathartic, especially when she's confronted with Storm's tragic mistake and refuses to repeat it herself. Oh, and in case you were afraid this had a happy ending, Belasco gets four out of five bloodstones and doesn't have a strict time limit on when he can get the fifth. Fine. I guess I am a sadist. You're welcome. The What If Comics question is, what would have happened had Ileana not returned to the X-Mansion after she escaped? And as much as I love the mini, I just adore this one shot. There's something about Stephen Strange and Wong playing weird pastrami-obsessed dads to Ileana that warms my cynic's heart. The one shot does seem to ignore or skip over Ileana obtaining her soul sword, but other than that, it pulls a lot of threads from the mini and pays them off in new and engaging ways. Also, the line, Wong, she's feral and never had pastrami before, will never not tickle me. Come to think of it, I'm not sure I've ever had pastrami myself. Hmm. Anyway, the overall premise is that after Ileana escapes Limbo, she travels for a while before Strange, well, kind of kidnaps her? Then realizes he basically did the same thing to her that Belasco did, and he apologizes. Then offers to train her, but only with her consent. Keyword. There are some interesting comments regarding trauma that I think are handled rather deftly, but full disclosure, I don't have much frame of reference personally, especially for being kidnapped to a hell dimension, despite that coming up a weirdly significant number of times in my pop culture viewing. And since both endings are inherently spoiled, I'll say that the what-if issue makes an excellent palate cleanser after the stress and pain of the miniseries. I can't stress my love of either of these titles enough. In all honesty, I don't generally enjoy older comics. The art style is very hard for me to get past on a lot of times, limitations of the era being what they were. But I read these on a recommendation from a friend, and they are just so, so good. That's all for today, kids. Next time, I'll dazzle you with some different magic. And yes, I know, I used that foreshadow last time, but I have my reasons. As always, you can find me hiding out on Instagram at uppityLittleHomo, where I'll be posting cute pictures or showing off whatever new Funko Pop figure I've acquired. I swear, it's not an addiction, even if cocaine would be cheaper at this point. Anyway, I'm off. Happy reading. P.S. My Sorcerer Supreme has two daddies, and nothing will convince me otherwise. Hello, I'm gay geek psychiatrist Dr. Matt Connor, and welcome back to Merry Mutant Mental Health, a segment where we talk a little bit about the mental health issues inspired by some of the X-Men comics Nico and the team are reading on X's for Podcast. Oof, this was a rough one, wasn't it? Avengers Annual 10 was something that I read in my first year or two of comics fandom. 
I knew I'd loved the X-Men and the Avengers, but I had never heard of Carol Danvers, and meeting her like this was so powerful and so jarring. Here's this former teammate, back in action, but when her friends try to welcome her, she has to tell them that they completely missed that she left the team under the most abusive relationship a comic could show. They literally made jokes about her sexual abuse without even knowing it. There is no feeling like I got when I saw the looks on the faces of the Avengers as they realized their friend had been manipulated, raped, and kidnapped, and they had only seen the bizarre romance of it all. Carol couldn't explain herself more clearly. They messed up. They did the exact opposite of the right thing, and she can't be around them right now if she wants to keep her mental health. Y'all, for the next few minutes, I'd like to put us in the shoes of those Avengers. We're going to learn how to apologize. First up. The most important part of an apology is recognizing that it is for the person who has been hurt. I'll expand on this, and it's okay if you're feeling defensive already, but again, the most important part of an apology is recognizing that it is for the person who has been hurt. An apology is not to mend a relationship. It can help. But if that's your goal, you're going to be forcing someone into a space they may not be emotionally ready for yet. An apology is not to cleanse you of your guilt. It will feel better to acknowledge that you were wrong, and instead of holding it in your head all the time. But if that's your goal, are you sure you're going to remember to listen to the person who needs to talk? An apology is not to show how wrong the person is for having their feelings hurt. They may have totally misinterpreted what you said, and you will have time to make your case later. But this is an apology. It's a time to stop all the forward motion and just be in the feelings together for a little while. An apology is to let the person know that you recognize that they're hurt, to offer up what you've thought about so far, to allow them space to safely think about it. They may not forgive you right then. They may never forgive you. That's not under your control, and I sure wish it was. But if you want to apologize with depth and meaning, you can't make it about changing the person's mind and making them love you like they used to. So maybe the Avengers might want to start with something like, <coughs> Carol, we are so sorry. This comes as a total shock, and we can't make it right, but we want to say that we're sorry. Okay, once that's done, what goes into the actual apology itself? First off, try to spend some time thinking about things from the other person's perspective. How do you think they feel? Why do you think they feel that way? Try not to make assumptions, and it's okay if you guess wrong. What matters is that you're trying to be open to their experience as separate from your own goals. So, if we're coaching the Avengers through their apology, let's continue with, we can't imagine what you're feeling. We haven't been through what you've been through, and we won't pretend that we have. You look angry, and you have every right to be. In your place, we'd probably also feel hurt, disappointed, scared, and nauseated. Trust us, we're going through some of that ourselves right now. After that, think about what they got from you that might have led to this, whether you agree with them or not. You don't have to admit you were wrong if you genuinely think you weren't. We want honesty in this apology. But what did the person see from you? Moving on with the apology, then let's try. When you came to us with this pregnancy, we wanted to believe it was a gift. We treated it with a light attitude. And when Marcus took you, we believed that you were in love instead of questioning it like we wish we had. We regret what we said, the jokes we made. You needed our support, and we didn't give it to you. And we're sure that hurt you. After this, if you can, think of any ideas that might show that you've learned from it. It's okay if you don't have any yet, and remember, it's eventually up to the other person to decide what they're ready to do next. For the Avengers, I might suggest, 
We understand that you may never forgive us, and we will have to live with knowing that we failed you when you needed us most, but we did care about you, and we still do. We won't force you to talk to us, but we'd like to call you in a couple days to see how you are, and if you don't want us checking in, we hope you'll keep our number and let us know if that changes. If you do get ready, any one of us is here to listen to you and follow any suggestions you have about how we can try to be friends again. You were a terrific superhero, and if we can help you regain that, we want to. But on your terms, we were wrong, and we can't change that. Finally, and this is the hardest part, you shut up. No more words. This is not the time to ask for an apology in return. This is not the time to say, but if you think about it, what I did wasn't really wrong. This is not the time to say, are you okay? The person will let you know if they're okay or not. Don't ask them. They will let you know what they need next if you just wait quietly. And what they need next might be for you to leave the room, and if they say that, do it. Your turn will come later. It's their turn now. You can text them tomorrow to ask if they're okay, but don't get pushy about it, okay? Don't demand that they answer you. Don't text more than once. And if they haven't responded in a day or two, take the hint. They will get back to you on their time, or they won't. What you had in your control was whether you apologized and what words you used, and that part is done. Y'all, this sounds so simple, so straightforward. It is not, not in any way. Guilt, hurt, anger, disappointment, these are miserable feelings. They're awful. But good relationships are able to repair after damage is done. Good mental health involves learning from mistakes, not just not ever making mistakes. That's unreasonable, and I don't expect that from you. It's hard, but you can learn to do this, to apologize. And when you get this skill under your belt, it will become your superpower. I promise. Okay, I don't know about you, but I could use a break after that. And if you want to, you can use yours following me on Instagram. My Instagram handle is Matthew James Connor, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-J-A-M-E-S-C-O-N-N-E-R for like cosplay and cute dog pictures. I did like an aerial silks thing recently. That's kind of fun. But really, I just don't use social media all that much. Anyway, uh, hopefully we get to talk next time about something a little less stressful. It's so interesting that prior to this episode, I don't think we'd ever touched on Spider-Woman in any way, and here we are, tons of Spider-Woman. I know we had a Dazzler appearance, she didn't come up because she did nothing in the goddamn issue. It was bizarre that Caliban was able to give that many ex-women, Storm, Kitty, Dazzler, Stevie, all a run for their money, Spider-Woman, I don't even know. But it was so much fun to spend that much time with Spider-Woman, and I'm really glad you're walking away from this a Jessica Drew fan. Yeah, absolutely. It's a little bit of a weird fr- a weird kinship where I'm okay with seeing where she's going, but she's a little bit on thin ice for me in that I need interesting stories from her and I need nuance similar to what we saw at the end of Avengers Annual number 10. It was great to see the X-Men take a breather and 148 and 149 gave us a number of emotional moments. I loved seeing the X-Men care for Kitty. I loved seeing Storm be such a strong leader. And it was great to see Kitty be an active, interested X-Man. She tried to graduate a little too early and give herself a uniform, and it was hideous, but she did the best she could, guys. She's 13 and a half, and she's still stowing away on jets. Cut her a break. But no, that costume is ugly as fuck. It absolutely is, and this is coming from the girl who we thought was wearing a bedazzled bitch t-shirt when she first met the X-Men. Yeah, it looks like she took an acid trip through Candyland, and it's just a lot of look. We also saw Scott and Lee wash up on Magneto's beach and be their dinner guests. 
I don't even know. But it's been a lot of fun, except for all of that horrifying kidnapping, rape, mind control, torture stuff that poor Carol went through over in Avengers Annual 10. But once again, Carol Danvers, if you know anything about MCU.html, Kevo and my show here on the network, you know what a humongous Carol Danvers fan I am. And I am so excited that she's in the X-Men for a little while. It's going to be a lot of fun to see her grow, especially with the entire world being so in love with her now, thanks to that last handful of Marvel movies. Jonah, I know you're a big Carol fan. It had to be exciting to have her finally show up. I am a little sad in that it, my first comic appearance of Carol Danvers is something so harsh and very dark but carol is a very strong woman i've seen from the movie and i'm so excited to see what that means for her in the x-men because i know she's a killer woman and she's able to hold her own and until she's back with the x-men to hold their own jonah where can everybody find you online if you would like to reach out to me you can find me on twitter and instagram at jonah rubino and at jonah.rubino respectively nico where can everyone find you you guys can find me here on the network hosting shows like HTML, like I mentioned with Kevo, where we talk about all sorts of media matters. You can find me on Now and Again with my childhood best friend, Chris, where we talk about pop music through the Now That's What I Call Music lens. We have some other amazing comic shows here, like the episodes of X's for Podcast featuring Captain Britain, Dazzler, The Defenders, as well as some upcoming material like Thor. So keep an eye out here. You can also check out my original comics at KidRiotComics.com, as well as my music at Facebook.com slash ActionDuo. Don't forget to check me out on Instagram at NicoAction, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. All right. Until we come back to Gray Malkin Lane, we'll see ya. See ya, everyone.